All right, folks, we are back for another episode of the Inclusion Solution Lab, specifically our Everyday People, Everyday Stories series. I'm so excited to be joined with Sajda Ali George. Um, she is an education and IT consultant, a trainer, nonprofit developer, and entrepreneur, among other things. But most importantly, she is an everyday person experiencing this global pandemic with us. Um, Sajda, I'm so excited to have you joining us today. So, thank you, so Brittany, excited. for having me. I'm I'm excited to be here. This is this is a wonderful opportunity. So thank you. One thing I didn't share, and Sajjo will share a little bit more, is that um, she is joining us from the British Virgin Islands. So I'm, I'm excited to have just a even more perspective into what has become, even though it's a global pandemic, a very um, U.S.-centric conversation, if or depending on what your you know, media outlets are or what you're following. So um, we're going to jump right in, and um, I'm going to ask Sajjo to just share a little bit more about um, yourself and more specifically, what aspects of your identity have influenced how you're experiencing this moment in time? Okay, well, um, thank you again. So more about myself. I am all of those things that you just mentioned in my bio. <laughs> so many different titles. Um, but in addition to that, I'm a mother and I'm a wife, and I also go into how that the importance of those roles play into this new situation. Um, I've, my, my career background starts in education. I have over 25 years with special education. So my education consultancy focuses on um, helping schools, helping parents, helping teachers become more inclusive for students with special needs, working with um, diverse populations when it comes to academic needs, and just um, academic support overall. Um, my nonprofit background, I've been in it about 15 years out of my life, and I've had my own nonprofit for about 12, and now I'm on the board of another nonprofit. The one that I uh, founded myself focused on sustainable education in East Africa, and the one that I'm a board member of now focuses on um, addressing the maternal crisis of women of color in the United States. So all of those uh, avenues are very near and dear to my heart as far as advancing humanity. And that's what I consider myself a, a humanitarian in all aspects of everything that I do. And with the IT training and consulting, that kind of is another uh, caveat into how to better reach other people when it comes to working with students with diversity. It's just here's another platform that we can use as part of 21st century learning that we can engage students in. So that's how it really, in a nutshell, how it's all come to be. And that is what led me to being in the Virgin Islands. My husband's a consultant as well, and so last summer he took a position with the Ministry of Education down here um, to do some work. And I was still in North Carolina at the time, and I had come back and forth visiting him, but I was still in North Carolina doing work as an education consultant. And uh, then they offered me a three-month contract starting in January, ending in March. So, came down This here. January? Yes. Oh, so this, so, so you're new in the British Virgin Islands and experiencing the, oh, wow. Yes, yes. So, with, with the consultancy that I do, I often travel. That is a perk of what mm -hmm. I do. I travel domestically often, um, and I also get a few opportunities to travel internationally. And I feel like it's part of my greater passion to do it internationally because around the world, special education and differentiation instruction is not seen the same way, right? There's a lot of cultural and social barriers that keep students from across the board from really getting the type of education that they need for um, their circumstance. So I, I take great passion in going over the pond or across the waters to help educate and collaborate with other teachers and advancing that. So that was a purpose for me coming over here, especially in the secondary schools or the high schools. They did not have a um, special education program necessarily for the secondary schools. So my purpose for the three months as a consultant was to work on that. 
And once my contract was over, the plan was for me to come back home <laughs> to do some more work and kind of reset. Um, and with that being the case, my son and um, my husband has children. I have children, so we're, we're uh, you know, like a black birdie bunch. Um, all of our children are still in North Carolina. So my son, who is eight years old, was just like, okay, mom is going to work. She travels a lot. He's used to me going abroad, and he's with his dad. So the fact that I called him and I said, well, baby, you know, I'm not going to make it home, you know, that was a large transition that we had to tell all of our kids on. Um, the older ones are in high school and college, so, you know, that you were able to, you know, deal with that a little more understanding and make sense. Um, so this would be the longest time I would say that my son and I have been away from each other, capacity. So with and if I'm if I'm rushing the conversation, but it kind of brings into how COVID has affected me now, right? So it's one of those situations where you're living your everyday life, and then everything comes to a standstill. Everything comes to a standstill. And you're looking at, I'm, I'm looking at the United States, that world, from reports and social media and from apps and from reports from my family. I'm looking at, I feel like I'm looking through a window. The other side is the life I used to live. And now I have this life over here. Um, it's been very humbling, I would say. It's been, uh, I, I joke with my friends, but it's been a Netflix movie. <laughs> And so many twists yeah, and turns yeah, and dramatic yeah. situations. Um, I literally feel like I'm two people that my conscience mm-hmm. is still in the state and my body, and I have to develop a different conscience here. It was a point where I was becoming accustomed to the culture. Uh, I, my husband is from the Caribbean, so this is his home country. So I had that connection. And being a global citizen, as I call myself, and traveling in different places, I enjoy living abroad temporarily to expose myself to different ways of life. But becoming affixed to a position by circumstance, mm-hmm. that, that, it just stops you, you know, it just stops you and you have to train your mind to adjust to everything that's not typical. Now, my non-typical adjustments were just me understanding how the school systems work and how the culture works and develop new relationships. And that's when things were, quote, unquote, normal before COVID. And now this country has to adjust. And they're implementing new policies and they're implementing new strategies and methodologies that are very foreign to me. And I'm comparing it back home and I'm experiencing this, but I'm emotionally experiencing that. So it's been a roller coaster. It's been a roller coaster, but I'm fortunate to to be with my husband for one. Um, but also being able to stay connected with my family and learn a new appreciation of you know uh, virtual meetings and FaceTime and phone conversations and how that really can ground you um, and in a situation like this. So it's uh it's it's different. It's different. You talk about experiencing, obviously, like what's going on over here in the States from like outside the window and then, you know, physically being there. Like what is in some of the differences? Like what is, based on, I guess, what you've observed and perhaps even heard from your family about like what we have going on over here. So I'm in Maryland. We're still shelter in place. Um, Schools are closed up until May 15th, but it'll probably exceed that. I, I have a feeling that schools are, um, are going to end up closing or be closed until the end of the end of the school year. Um, what's going on over there? Like, what are some of the differences? I guess even maybe even similarities in how um, the country's responding. So um, the United States started to experience the spread much sooner than the British Virgin Islands. And to kind of give you a, a visual location of where we are, so if, you're, if you've been to Florida, then you know from Florida you can go to Puerto Rico, and then from Puerto Rico you can go to the U.S. Virgin Islands, right, St. Thomas. So that's still all U.S. territory. The British Virgin Islands is right below the U.S. Virgin Islands, right? So we're only 45 minutes by ferry boat away from the United States. Gotcha. 
And the U.S. Virgin Islands and the British Virgin Islands are like sister islands. They have a political and, and international relationship because they do mm-hmm. commerce and business with one another. Um, so we often, so here they often look to the United States to see how things are being done and kind of lead the charge because economically we have this pairing and this relationship that is necessary, just starting from St. Thomas being a sister island. So a lot of focus was on the U.S. In addition to that, it being Caribbean country, of course, uh, the biggest economic factor here is tourism. So every, while everyone watching the United States, they were also looking at the cruise liners to see what they were going to do. Personally, watching everything happen around the world, and I'm very much a, uh, I'm a news buff. I'm constantly looking at the news all the time between CNN and BCC and all, Al Jazeera and all those other news stations. I'm trying to find out what's going on. And then when I saw that the cruise liners were being shut down in other places, but they haven't started yet in the Caribbean, I was like, hey, what are we waiting for? <laughs> it's coming. Mm-hmm, it's coming. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was quite interesting to kind of see how the spread was happening um, uh, categorically in that sense. So once the cruise liner stopped here, um, then we were just pretty much operating without our, the largest uh, economic factor here, which was tourism. But that was brief. Um, there are a lot of multimillionaires that live here. A lot of people uh, escape to the Caribbean. And so we had a lot of that with different people from the United States who were wealthy coming in. And then after that, you know, they started to bring in the virus. So once the first confirmed case came in, that's when they put us on lockdown. Now, the difference between our lockdown and the United States lockdown is, well, y'all don't have a lockdown. Y'all have a stay-at-home order, which is very nice. Yeah. It's nice to stay because you can still go out to a grocery store. You can still go to the hospital. You can still go to doctor's appointments. You can still handle essentials. Mm-hmm. You can drive to family members if necessary. Um, you can actually go outside of your house and walk around the neighborhood. You can exercise. Um, mm-hmm. And even with some areas before, then you might have been able to go to the park. Here, when they say lockdown, it's similar to what they did in China. You cannot leave your house for any circumstance mm-hmm. for 24 hours. So for 24 hours, when we first were informed about the 24-hour lockdown, they gave us three days to go shopping. And this is an island with a population of about 50,000 people. And so everybody was racing to the store to purchase food and necessities for 14 days, because that's how long we were going to be locked down in our homes. Um, so that was unique for me. And I, we live in an apartment, so we don't have a yard. At least if you had a front yard, you can go out to your front yard and get some exercise. But if you're in an apartment, that's it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which a lot of people are. Um, so that was a very ex- interesting experience. And it was, trying to, it was interesting explaining to my family when I would communicate with them because they would use the word lockdown, you know, facetiously. I was using it <laughs> le- legitimately. Like I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm locked down. down. Everything is clean. <laughs> <laughs> It's like Shawshank in here, you know, like it's, we're locked down and we can't leave. They have a, they're patrolling the streets and making sure people stay in their homes. And if not, you know, there are legal consequences that with the police. So that was a very unique situation for me for 14 days, the first 14 days. And so everyone stayed glued to the news to find out what would be the next step. And the government here took a very strong, proactive position when it came to the spread here. Um, I would say that when, before the lockdown happened, we had not had one confirmed case. And then when the lockdown happened, we had only two confirmed cases, but they were, those people will be in quarantine, right? So you kind of look at their, um, their methods as far as the extent that they went starting off. They went very, very strong. And then... So, so far since the lockdown is, uh, started in the beginning of March, and so now we, from what they report, we've only had about six confirmed cases, and out of those six, only one death. But we have been on lockdown for about 30 days. So they were very... Now, right. this is the real lockdown. 
the real lockdown. This is, like the real, this is the real lockdown. We real real lockdown for 30 days. Um, after the first 14 days, they let us out for three so we can get essentials. And that was a madhouse, as you can imagine. Everybody coming out, mm-hmm. doing whatever they yes. need to do, trying to pay bills. You know, um, the government working with different um, service providers, such as internet service providers and, and water and, and electricity to make sure that the people still have their needs met. So that lockdown took on for about another, uh, I'd say another 12 days or so. So we will, everyone was looking forward to leaving. And so that's when more cases, actually that's when another, the one person actually died. Um, so they decided to put us on lockdown for another week and a half. But this time, instead of us leaving, they just established a food delivery service. So you can go online and purchase your groceries from different markets, and they would deliver so it. So this was sanctioned us. by the government. The food delivery service, was that something sanctioned by the, or driven by the business community, or was that actually like guidance? That came from that was that was sanctioned by the government. That was initiated and sanctioned by the government because at that time everything was closed down. Nobody could open business. Gotcha. It was literally a ghost town. And all the the wildlife, such as we have all of these goats and, and chickens and roosters and sheep and yeah. cows that like are just wild and just wander around. They were taking over the city at this time because there was nobody on the road. <laughs> nobody was out. They were having a ball. Uh, so, um, <laughs> like finally, <laughs> so they uh, the government initiated that, and actually consider, and that's actually the first time here that food delivery service was introduced. It wasn't; some, it's not something that's regular here. Um, so it was introduced, and it was introduced on a mass scale. And coming from America, of course, we have high expectations for food delivery because to us, they you blink and get your food like that. So I saw how new business and infrastructure was developed at this time. And I was actually quite impressed um, about how efficient um, it went compared to, you know, if you think about something they've never implemented before and then literally overnight they had to create a system that worked for the government and worked for the territory and they were able to do that to where people were being fed, people were receiving food um, whether they paid for it, and they had a free delivery, a food delivery service where free food was being delivered to them. So I was really quite impressed with the how functional and efficient the territory had handled the situation and coming from a global perspective, which not that many people I spoke to here could really understand. I said, this has actually gotten really well, um, considering that where you all were coming from before. Um, and it did. so while this is going on, I'm still talking to my family back home, and they're like, yeah, I want to go to the grocery store and pick up this and pick up that, and, you know, me missing that opportunity to kind of go out and do for myself instead of having to rely on people to bring things to me. That was um, definitely a humbling experience, trying to stay busy in the house, uh, dealing with third world uh, barriers such as unreliable internet. You know, um, nothing here is conveniently unlimited. So you have to always kind of make sure you have the finances to to provide that for yourself. Um, also, here in the have issues with electricity. So sometimes electricity will go out. You know, or using cistern water to using government water, it would just switch on you. And thankfully, my husband will let me know, okay, tomorrow the government's switching the water system, this and that. So it was a lot of adjustments um, overall that had to be made initially before COVID, but even more so now. Um, so I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of uh, Netflix and chilling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I just caught up in a lot of music. Um, my husband and I, we, you know, played games, board games. We worked on lessons. We also established a business here. And the time that we've been here, um, it's actually the first academic supplemental business focused on diversity and inclusion uh, for the mm-hmm. island. So that was very successful, actually, right before COVID happened. And so it went to abruptly just stop. Like, ooh, mm-hmm. 
what's next? Now, now about three or four months into the success of our business, we had to transform, yeah. you know, and find a way to reinvent ourselves. And I noticed that is a very hot topic on LinkedIn, how to reinvent yourself during a time like this. If your business is providing something that's more of a tangible product, mm-hmm. now everyone is on a virtual platform. How do you transition yourself? So that was something that we worked diligently on as well. Um, being within the school systems, we followed along with the school to find out what their next moves were and just how we could be a part of that, uh, that effective change. Being an, uh, question. an IT how did trainer. They- what did the um? How was the school system impact? So this, I wonder what. So lock lockdown is obviously different than shelter in place, and the schools up here are still to some extent, well, at least in, in our district, business as usual, but just a virtual like platform. Um, and so what did school? How was the the school ministry impacted? Did they did that shut down altogether? Yeah, they shut down altogether. They actually shut down before there was a lockdown. Um, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So they shut it down, um, and, and it was, and, and I guess the, everything happened in a uniformed way. So, of course, I guess the government already knew what was going to happen, and they got the mm-hmm. school handled first because it was all kind of seamless, the way it went from um, the school shutting down, different public service industries shutting down, to now all of a sudden the the lockdown happening. Um, and... Interesting enough, as we were going through our lockdown, it just ran right into what was already a, a calendar scheduled for spring break for the schools. And they're, about, they're out about three weeks. That was already part of on their schedule. So during the spring break, everyone's locked down. Now the schools are starting to uh, do more training and get, develop a whole new system because they're starting on Monday, gotcha. starting back on Monday. Um, and every single teacher in the territory, an administrator, an assistant has to learn how to use a virtual platform to teach. So my husband and I have been very uh, active in helping with that and um, being part of various teams and preparing the teachers for that. And of course, on my end, working with teachers in the, um, in the special needs um, department. Um, so it's, it's, been, it's very, been very interesting um, of how things have transitioned so abruptly, but the understanding that life has to go on, uh, achievements still have to be made, and things have to still be done is um, it, it's, it's paramount. They are bringing back the economy slowly. Mm-hmm. Now, what I mean by that, now we're on a what they call a soft curfew. So we're only able to be out from 6 a.m. to 1 p.m. Then after 1 p.m., we're locked down again until the next day. So right now, I'm in my office at school. <laughs> and so you said you had to, be, you had to leave at 12. I got to leave at 12, too, because I have to work back to the other <laughs> side of the <laughs> island to leave before 1 o'clock. Um, and and uh, so, it, but it's a, it's a transition, which everybody, I would say the general consensus, they, the, the people have understood the necessity of it. You know, whenever the whenever the um, the government gives an announcement, the premier mm-hmm. speaks first, then the governor, and then the minister of health, and it's all on Facebook Live. So you're constantly able to see the comments at the bottom. And in general, the people feel very satisfied and uh, appreciative on how the government's been handling things. Because as I said before, they look at what's happening in America, and they don't want none of that. <laughs> and a lot of uh, BV Islanders have businesses and families in the state, so they're connected. Just to show you the comparison, oh, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but right after the schools closed, they closed the borders mm. to the territory. So um, no one could really get in and out, which is why I'm still here. Right, and mm-hmm. I wasn't able to fly out. My flight actually was like for April 6th, and by that time we were on lockdown, borders were closed, yeah. it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, so, St. Thomas, and I said before, is in about 45 minutes by ferry um, to us. St. Thomas has now, I think, 50 confirmed cases or more and several deaths. 
So their numbers are starting to, are continuing to grow. They're following the trend as the rest of the United States when it comes to per capita, right? They're growing rapidly. And so, and so is Puerto Rico. Those, because they can't close their borders. They're islands, but they can't close uh, off their, their territory. Fortunately, we can, and we have. And of course, because it's the British Virgin Islands, they have the, they have the relationship with the UK, um, and that has significantly impacted this country's ability to develop a new normal, but safely and um, efficiently because the borders have been closed. Um, and I applaud that. <laughs> I really I'm, do. I'm applauding I, I applaud it. Like, <laughs> and, oh, so y'all listening? Because <laughs> this is, you know, yeah, yeah, this is. It, 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 and, it, and, it, um, and, and so, you know, looking, comparing our strategy, what's been happening here compared to what's been happening in the state, as I see that things are progressing and we're moving towards a positive direction and, and flattening the curve or stopping the spread, actually, because we don't really have a curve, thankfully, because of our numbers have been so low. We're so under 10. Um, but the, the, their objective from the beginning, the government's objective, has always been to stop it, to stop it, not even allow for any of it to come in. So, you know, comparing this to what's happening in the state, I had somewhat of a small little anxiety attack when I read about all of these states opening up and the numbers mm-hmm. are continuing to climb. And I'm like, you all are nowhere near opening up for businesses in and whatever, and it, I became I became very nervous for my family, for my son, for really? oh, my um, one of my bonus kids. What she's an essential worker, you know, so mm. she has to go in every day, right? Um, my son's family uh, members, there some of them are essential workers. You know, he's with them right now. So understand, and then of course reading about the statistics of people of color who are dying at a higher rate in the United States because of the spread and understanding that the large population of people of color who are the essential workers, so they're on the front lines anyway. Um, so whatever is out there, it's going to manifest in their communities. And then how African-Americans and Latino-Americans, they are turned away constantly in the hospitals to that. And I was already aware of the racial disparities in the medical system for people of color. So seeing how you have a subgroup of people who are adamant about going outside just so we can get a haircut and get a burger and seeing that selfish mentality, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about the me and not the we factor and being in denial and that calling is- this virus fake, calling this virus, you know, propaganda or just a way to get, you know, the president out the office. It, it goes beyond political affiliation. Um, and for them, I, I was listening to the governor of New York, and he's actually become my favorite personality now. And I saw an interview where an interviewer was asking him, you know, why don't you do the same thing all these other states are doing and opening up? Why do you have against business? You know, do you believe in the statement that the cure can't be worse than um, the virus? And he was like, well, what's worse than death? Nothing's worse than death. And that was such a powerful statement because that's exactly what everyone is facing. They're not facing inconvenience. They're not facing a moment of, um, you know, uh, being unfavored. It's, they're literally facing death. And if it's not you, it's someone else. Um, and that's the reality. And that's the position that the government here took. Every, this, is, this will kill you. So we want to make sure that people don't die. I feel like not every um, the United States of America is not united in that mentality at all. Um, so it's been looking through that mirror. It's been looking through that window and just having moments where I'm gasping for air and just like, no, what's going on? Fine. One thing that I think is worth calling out here because you talked about the I before the we, right? And so um, <clears throat> the United States is a individualistic culture. We actually explored on the blog this week how individualism is a pattern 
um, of white supremacy culture. Um, I'm going to make a connection here. And in our last season, Travis Jones, he talked about how uh, white supremacy culture being so invisible in the norm that even those who think they benefit from this, you know, being part of the dominant culture, aka white people, don't realize how it can eventually, like, kill them, right? Like, lead them to death. Like, the name of the episode was Dying from Whiteness. And so it's interesting because it's not even interesting, but it's 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 deadly. That's what it is. And then, you know, we've 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 embraced this cultural norm of bootstrap theory, worry about yourself, um, I over we. It's all about making it up the 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 economic ladder to the point where you actually have leaders choosing profit and economy over people. And so to hear this, you know, the British Virgin Islands, the premiere is, it's black. Um, no, I was black. <laughs> this is a black, this is a black-led country. This is a black-led country. The only person who's not to is be the collectivist. Right. Right? Right? Mm-hmm. right? I just yeah. want to call it out. So it's like, uh, you know, the Caribbean and, and even other parts of the, the black diaspora are known to embrace collectivism the we over the I, like this is what this looks like in practice. And I think a lot of times we get so stuck in, especially just U.S. culture more broadly in our norm and sort of this internalized esteem, not even thinking about or even occurring that there is so much to be learned, so so much to like interrogate about ourselves and what we've learned, if we even consider like another way. And so to just hear this is refreshing. Because I don't think we hear enough the ways in which um, uh, communities of color, Black communities in particular, solve problems, create structures, um, uh, deal with global pandemic challenges, and do so in a way that um, yields these kind of outputs and in, 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 in outcomes and prioritizes people and life. Like, you're right. Like, he's right. What is worse than death? Right. Anyway, I have to get that off. No, this I've had that conversation. No, I'm yeah. glad you said that. I had that conversation with a friend of mine, and it's, um, she's from the UK, and we actually got down here around the same time. Our husbands are of the same family, so we met for the first time. We realized we're, we're cousins through marriage, and she was she's Pakistani, but she was raised in the UK. Um, so what I'm experiencing with the US, she's experiencing with the UK, looking at the news and how everything is going up there and making comparisons, but oftentimes the U.S. and the U.K., as far as um, white entitlement, their behaviors are similar. Mm-hmm. And so we're constantly, she and I are people of color. She's Pakistani, um, I'm African-American. And so we're looking at them like they're crazy. <laughs> Why can they understand that by them thinking individ- individualistically, they're hurting the population on a grander scale? So we've um, kind of re- leaned on each other as far as, you know, adapting to a different culture before COVID. Um, and so experiencing how the government's been handling, of course, it's outside of our norms, our social norms, or what we know our countries to do, but we both have a strong appreciation for it. We will tell one another, oh my God, I'm tired of being here, I'm out of food, this is crazy, I'm going stir crazy, I'm running around the room, but if I had a choice, I would rather be here experiencing this than in the United States or in the UK, because we feel like what's happening right now is going to benefit us. It hurts me to my core that I can't see my son. I can't go home. And there's been moments where my husband had to, like, pull me from running out the door of my suitcase because my urge as a mom, you know, at that moment superseded my, my sense of what will be the purpose of going back there with the situation being as grave as it is. And he would have to reinforce, baby, it's not about you. You go back there. You catch it. You can't come back here, you know. And then what, how can you help your son if you're sick, you know? So once again, that is think about the we situation. You know, as much as you want to see your child, you come back here, you could potentially infect everyone here, you know? Um, and you may not even get to see him because you never know what will happen between the airport and, you know, visiting. So there's more, there's more of a risk for my, my, my purpose, my, my needs being met my maternal needs be in that. But that was me having that challenge of 
you know, the typical U.S. American individualistic mindset that we promote often versus look at the greater, look at the greater group and the community. Mm-hmm. And now that you're part of a community, it just can't be about what you want. So I had to create a sense of normalcy and um, connection that's unique with my son now virtually. We had to build that, you know. So I'm like, okay, let me use my maternal skills and try to create something that's going to make him feel connected with me and vice versa. Um, and that has worked. That has worked. It's actually worked with all of our kids. So that is a um, something new that I, I've had to experience and I've had to kind of dig deep and become creative about. But it comes with the understanding that, uh, you know, as, we, as spiritual people believe, this too shall pass, but it may not pass as quickly as we think. And I think that oftentimes when we say those motivational words, this too shall pass. We're thinking it's gonna. We're thinking it's gonna be a forty-eight hour pass. We're thinking it's gonna be like a week-long pass. But this could go into the next year and potentially the following year. Um, as of right now, we don't know when they're gonna open the borders. We really don't, you know. But as they take things along, you know, very uh, cautiously and with proper judgment, it is with the mentality of we want to make sure that not only does this um, goes down and goes away, it stays away. Or we have systems in place to where we can address it if it were to reoccur. So I think it's a very smart move. It is very difficult and tough sometimes, especially when you get in your own head about it. But living abroad and being able to experience a new way of life during this has been very um, educational for me. It's, I think it has improved my consciousness, my way of compassion, of empathy, becoming uh, expanded my um, credentials as a global citizen. Um, it's made me more aware of myself as an American and just seeing how, how we are. I'm very, very disappointed in the way things are being run in the government right now. I feel like leadership treats our country as a Jenga game and is slowly pulling blocks down from the foundation of our country and, you know, just to see how far they can go before it falls over. Um, I've had moments where I've, I've cried because I love being who I am as an American. I'm, under, I'm very aware of the history of my country and how I fit into that, but I'm, I'm proud of who I am. So to see it from afar this time, you know, kind of bird's eye view of what's happening, it's, it's very sad. Under, this, under the leadership it has right now. Um, at the same time, I am honored to be part of a community and a government and a, and, a, and a country that's handling it on a humanistic level, I feel. You know, mm-hmm. people want to say different things. Of course, the citizens there, they have their own opinions as, you know, oh, government's doing this and government's doing that. But I know my appreciation for what's happening is in comparison to what is not happening over in um in my country, and we're and we're small compared to the United States, but mm-hmm. you know I think we're doing really big moves here. Um, as far as how I'm able to continue with that through my skill um, and my career, and now is the opportunity of teaching those who've never dealt with uh, a virtual platform yeah. how yeah. to educate and how to educate students with disabilities. And because the system, the disability system or the special education system wasn't clearly identified, it actually came down here for that purpose, you know, mm-hmm. hadn't even really scratched the surface, but, you know, when it comes to when you're, when you're invited by a different country to do a job and you're engrossed in the community and is so focused on um, public service, you don't come in with the aspect that you know everything or that your system is right. better. You have to come in with cultural responsive understanding and cultural responsive sensitivity. A lot of learning foundations have to be in place on my end before I say, okay, this will, this is a method that we use or can be used or this is what it's looking like before. We have to build up that sense of trust. And I think I was able to develop that foundation in the three months of my contract to where now my opinions and my um, my leadership will be utilized 
uh, but now dealing with dealing with it in this type of situation where I can't sit next to you and you know lead you through a physical training, I have to do it virtually, and then I have to teach you how to use this platform to do it virtually, and you know um, it's a challenge that I accept, and I feel like that's just the next step of my uh, experience as a consultant. But it's it's definitely something that some days, you know, I'm. I'm Twisting my locks. <laughs> like, what do I do? How do I? Yeah. 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 So. so I'm wondering, especially as we wrap up, um, <clears throat> if you have any, uh, whether it's actions, like parting thoughts. And I kind of want to focus on the children. And so, um, whether it's from your perspective as a mom and now sort of a distance parenting um, relationship or or and an educator who has experience with um, students with a range of diverse needs, what do we need to be mindful of? You know, maybe what's the impact or what can we do? When it comes to, um, I want to speak for the parents first because right now everyone around the world seems to be now taking the leadership of their teachers and, and teaching at home. And I understand it's a very, very difficult and daunting situation, and some parents give up. What's very important that the first thing they do is create a schedule. When you were at work, you had a schedule. Your kids had a work, had a schedule. Schedules control um, the baseline of everything throughout the day. So children need that as well, even more so. Because left to their own, their own, um, their own devices, literally and figuratively, left to their own care, they are not going to be able to center themselves or their mind enough to focus on what needs to be done as far as their academics. So parents need to put in place a very clear, specific schedule of their day from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed, and it needs to be consistent. This helps a kid train their body, their mind, their attitude to focus on the work. I also suggest that when it comes to students who haven't had a lot of um, experience working, doing work on the computer, I'm not talking about with technology because all kids Mm -hmm. in the United States had some exposure to technology, but actually doing work on their computer that parents need to limit the amount of hours they have, I mean, of, of time on the computer versus on their personal device. So if the child is starting off doing an assignment, maybe give them 30 minutes for the first time they're experiencing it, and then the next day give them 35 minutes, and then maybe the next day give them 40 Mm -hmm. minutes. But decrease their screen time on their tablet or on their game or on their PS2 or something. Make the shift. Make them understand that you you will have screen time, but it will be with a different focus. Um... I think that's important. And then also put that into the schedule, allow their children to understand you will have breaks, you will have free time, and you will be able to do what you need to do, but getting the work done is important. And that's what teachers have always tried to do um, with their kids. Um, In addition to that, it's very, very important that the parents stay in constant communication with the teachers as much as possible engage in the conversations, what can I do, how can I improve, help me with this, show me what to do. The teachers are willing and wanting to have those conversations because they understand what they're going through and they want to be as helpful as possible. And it's difficult for them as well because a lot of teachers in the United States around the world are parents as well, so they're trying to juggle that. So they have that camaraderie with these parents nowadays. Um, I would say for the parents on an individual level, in addition to making your kids' schedule, make your schedule. If you know that you won't need to uh, monitor your child during homework, then you put them to your schedule, then that's 45 minutes that you can get your job done. You can have a meeting, a virtual meeting. You can, you know, do household chores. You can, you know, manage whatever you need to manage. Your day may look like you have to break it up as well because now you're multitasking, not just yourself, but your child, um, and that could be difficult. I would say that from the time a parent gets up, get up an hour early, maybe even two hours early than you have your child scheduled so you can get whatever you need to get done. That's most important. And communicate that to your coworkers if you're working from home. I think even if for parents who are not working from home and who have been laid off, 
still create a schedule for yourself because this will help with your mental health as far as keeping yourself focused, knowing what to do and the steps to do it. Um, for the teachers, uh, when it comes to teaching online, I would suggest, if possible, change your expectations um, as far as the rubric, as far as the academic um, expectations of the grades. You know, don't try to teach a student, any student regardless of disability, don't try to expect for a student to give the same type of work that they would have given in a brick and mortar school in your classroom now that they're on a virtual learning tool because there could be social caveats and social barriers that they have to deal with that are obstacles for them, right? This is a new challenge for kids. Kids are very resilient with dealing with obstacles, but they're used to what they're used to. And if they see that their parents don't have a hold of things and their teachers don't have a hold of things, they will break down as well. So everybody has a threshold of limits. So I would ask the teachers to be realistic and lower your expectations of the, of the rubric for the assignment and just really get down, if you can, of course, I'm sure the, the, your school district will dis dictate it for you, but if you can lessen the work, the amount of work and the pressures, I would strongly encourage to do that. And it also is a benefit for the teachers because that's less work you have to check. That's less amount of work you have to check and you have to go through as well. I think what overall needs to be understood um, is that if anything right now, I think special education teachers are probably at the, uh, the, the mountaintop as far as understanding what people have to go through by working in situations that are difficult and different than before because we understand the necessity of um, changing the environment, changing the narrative, creating realistic goals and measurable goals and timely goals. And, and such, we understand all of that. And what is the what is abnormal to the masses is normal to the minority. And oh right God. now, mm -hmm. everybody is. Mm -hmm. um, is that that tweetable quote right there? That's so good. <laughs> so so right now, everybody's experiencing what someone with a learning challenge is experiencing. Learning how to adapt in an environment that is abnormal to what they need and what they're used to, and they have to learn immediately in order to keep up. So those are some of the techniques that we in this field often use, you know. Um, and uh, so that's what I'm doing right now with these teachers, you know, but, it, but with this point in time, it's implementing those skills, but with the cultural sensitivity that is needed. Right, understanding that me being American and coming from the United States, although our uh, special education system is far more developed, um, I have to understand that what their institution looks like is going to be for them and best for them. And I would encourage that every teacher does that as well when talking to parents and understanding the parents communicate effectively but respectfully to the teachers. Look, this is what we're working with. How can we improve? You know, and that the, hopefully the parents can encourage the, the, the students to communicate to them about what works for them and also what is a structure for them. So communication all the way around, but everyone making space for the other person to adjust, right, and still feel successful, still feel accomplished, and still feel safe within that. Um, I, think that is, um, I think that's really important right now. This has been so wonderful. I know we got to wrap up because you have to get on the other side of the island. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Saja, where can folks find you if they want to follow up, reach out, learn a little bit more about your consultancy and the work that you're doing, if you don't mind okay. sharing? Sure, sure. Um, they can email me. Um, my email address is s. Ali George 16 at Gmail. And then my company email address is um, GDLC2020 at gmail.com. Um, excuse me. Um, our website, you can find us on Facebook 
at George Diverse Learning Center um, on Facebook. You can also find me on Facebook at Asaja Ali George. I'm also on Twitter. Um, yeah, so just all of our contact information is on our Facebook page. Our email information is on our Facebook page. I may have given the wrong email address because we just up upgraded the email address. So it, we just did the effort. And I can leak it in the episode, too. Right yeah, the, front, the right one is on the Facebook page. But uh, that's what we do. We, we often, my husband and I, we often talk about this. So we, he works with the regular ed teachers. I work with the special ed teachers and parents all the time. So just reach out, and we're able to help in any way possible. We are appreciative. We got um, just a real-life day-to-day account, which I think is just critical, even as we just broaden our own understanding of what is going on beyond our bubble. So I'm appreciative of that. And then, obviously, the tactics and tools you left us with for um, uh, really dealing with adapting to um, what has become this unnormal normal. And I know that our listeners will um, absolutely benefit. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you again. And folks, we will include all of that contact information for Sajda and her husband um, and their firm in the uh, when the um, episode notes. See y'all soon.